the Bible. Yeah, thank you all for oh, coming. By the way, bathrooms right here behind this wall. If you go out, take a left. Uh, also, this is really laid back. We want this to be kind of like you're at home, but you're not. And so if you want more pancakes, just get up and go get them or anything, okay? That's, hopefully that's not a problem for Liz. No, I am not distracted in the slightest <laughs> bit by that. Actually, I'm fairly amazed that any of you are here in the first place. Um, so you've already gotten points for getting up and being here. Um, so when I was in college, there was uh, an event that I went to um, uh, by a ministry that was entitled um, uh, Walk Through the Bible. Uh, and a guy came to our church uh, and did this event that actually lasted an entire Saturday. I'm only going to take three short sessions with you. Um, where he told the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one day. And I have never been more impacted by something in my entire life because it was the first time I ever saw the Bible in its total scope from beginning to end um, and also seeing it as how it unified and stitched together. Um, because by that time when I was in college, I had encountered what I assume you've encountered in numerous different contexts. And that is the fact that there's a lot of people for whom the Bible is significant not at all. <laughs> like there's, there's nothing special about it. Perhaps you've got a professor who uh, uh, has maybe even questioned its authority, possibly even mocked it even in certain circumstances. Um, the Bible, I would argue, is so central to what Christianity stands for and is so fundamental to even what the Ministry of Reform University Fellowship is about um, that I found it incredibly valuable when I was at the University of Memphis and even here at Ole Miss a few, uh, few times to do this seminar where we're simply going to tell the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's the idea. Tried to bring a few maps along to sort of point out things. Um, now, and what, what I want to challenge you with is this. Um, for a lot of people, you know, uh, they love to sort of, uh, you know, I want to get all this down so I can remember it, which is great. We're going to record these. Uh, take whatever notes you feel like you need to, to, to get your hands on. I found that for me, the real power of a seminar like this was just in kind of letting the whole thing wash over me. You know what I'm talking about? Like, because what you get is when you step back, you're like, how in the world is it possible that a group of collected authors and writers remain that unified over that many thousands of years, um, presenting a topic that stays the same from start to finish? It's just an astounding historical document uh, and weird for that very reason. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to, in our first session, uh, sort of give what I want to say is an introduction to the Bible, uh, sort of the way in which we look at the Bible. Uh, and then uh, in sessions two and three, we're just going to blitz through that story, hopefully touching on the topic of all 66 books in the Bible. Does that make sense? So you can at least get some general idea as to what the Bible is about. Um, someone can, I remember when I was, uh, the year before, uh, I left to go to seminary, I was sitting in my car with a, a, a high school student cause I was doing high school youth ministry at that time. And, um, I was dropping him off at his house and he was like, so you're going to Bible school, huh? And I was like, well, seminary. Yes. <laughs> seminary. Um, and he said, so you believe everything in the Bible? 
And I thought, oh, here's my chance. I said, yes, absolutely I do. And he said, so, you read all of it? I was like, oh, doggone it. Because I hadn't. And I started reading the Bible through I was going to read it through in a year. Well, two and a half years later, I finished it uh, and got through it. And I'll say this, that that was, after reading through that over two and a half years, that's where this material came from. Uh, there's a wonderful little book by John R.W. Stott called Understanding the Bible, uh, which is also where I'm taking a lot of this material as well. There are some great resources if you want to get into this topic of like the whole story of the Bible that I would certainly recommend to you uh, as you go along into it. But I will say this, Jason was right. I want this to be interactive. I'm also not going to go very long before we take a time out and we can all go stretch our legs uh, and do all that kind of stuff. And eat more pancakes and more delicious bacon that Hugh Stevens has uh, 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 so graciously put together here. So, Okay, uh, so introduction, first of all, to uh, the Bible. Um, what is the Bible about? I mean, really, if someone asked you for that elevator pitch, you know what an elevator pitch is, don't you? You get into the bottom floor of an elevator and you've got, what, three or four stories to tell somebody what something's about or what your product is about. Your elevator pitch is that. If someone comes to you and says, what is the Bible about? Um, I want to build on the premise of this one simple statement, that the Bible is a book about salvation for humanity through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's going to be my working definition. The Bible is a book about the salvation of mankind through the man Jesus Christ. That's the simple statement. Because the Bible actually answers its own question here. <laughs> in 2 Timothy, when Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteous, righteousness, that the man of God may be, fully, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Does that make sense? Now, the reason why we start with what the Bible is about is because my premise in this study is to say this, <clears throat> 95% of the objections that people have towards the Bible will root themselves in the fact that they're asking the Bible to be something that it is not. Okay? This is, if there's anything I want you to lock onto, it's that simple idea right there. When someone comes and registers a complaint or an objection to something that the Bible says, I believe that that objection has to do with them trying to turn the Bible into a kind of book that it is not. What do I mean? Let me give a couple examples. Well, first of all, I would say the Bible is not primarily intended to be a science textbook in the way in which your science textbooks are given to you at the university. It's not a science textbook. It's not to, uh, meant to sort of look at the, the, at the visual world around them, test it by scientific principles, and give those ideas out. Does that mean, therefore, that it's unscientific? No. But it's not its purpose to be a science textbook. Secondly, I would also say that it's not primarily meant to be a literary book. Literary book in the sense that these are people who are making up various stories about certain topics and spinning tales and myths and legends in the way in which people often do so today. The writing of historical fiction. The Bible doesn't intend to be that, but oftentimes people go in and read the stories of the Bible as if it is that. And inevitably what happens are problems come up. Now, don't get me wrong, the literary nature of the Bible is a very big helpful topic that we'll talk about in just a minute. But that's not to say that primarily it is a collection of myths and legends. At least it doesn't picture itself that way. And then finally, the Bible is not a philosophical book. 
when I was in college, you know, you had those moments where someone would sort of whiz some kind of argument at you because they had taken philosophy 101 and you were like, oh, you're mind blown. I don't know how to answer that question. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, why wouldn't God like cover this? You ever thought about that? Like, I just wish that he would have put like the perfect proof for the existence of God in, you know, first proofs, you know, 316 or something, right? Where is it in the Bible? Why didn't he choose to do it that way? And I really, sometimes that still puzzles me. By the way, the answer to that question I think is kind of interesting. We'll get to it in just a second. Salvation, therefore, in the Scripture's eyes, when the Bible comes along and says that the Scripture, therefore, is profitable, it is good for you, it is something that God has given to us, is not primarily intended to be an intellectual exercise. And this is very bothersome for many of you who are kind of wired that way. You're either scientifically oriented or you've got sort of a very brilliant thinking mind that you're like, I get to the things that I am in life using my intellect. Right? I'm going to think my way into this. Some of you tried to work through your own emotional problems this way. How's that working out for you? Have you ever suffered from depression? Have you ever tried to think your way out of it? (gasps) If I could just figure this out. Doesn't work, does it? Oftentimes, we bring to the Bible a desire to say, if I fill my mind with enough facts about my life and about the way God made the world, then I'll be able to figure it out. And once I figure it out, I'll be fine, won't I? The Bible says, no, I'm not actually here to give primarily an intellectual sort of statement to you. I'm actually here to sort of deal with your moral, ethical life, which is different. Uh, If we had more time, we would talk about how the Bible is trying to deal with what the Bible calls our hearts. Our hearts are not the place where your emotions are, by the way. Our hearts are the center of everything. Uh, Proverbs uh, 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow all of the issues of life. Your thinking, your rationality, is flowing from this thing the Bible calls your heart. Your emotions, your, your up and down that you have any day comes from what the Bible calls your heart. Your choices that you make in life, the, uh, uh, the decisions you make day in and day out are coming from this place the Bible calls your heart. Now, what is the heart there for? Well, it turns out to be the place where you hold your beauties. Your beauties being the things that you look at and say, wow, if I could only have that, if I could only be that. The heart is a place where you hold your allegiances. It's the thing that you look at and say, man, if I could just have that, or if I own this, or if I could be in possession of that. Uh, If it's directed towards God, the Bible says that you have something called faith and a life of faith and the fruits of faith. If it's directed towards the creature rather than the creator, the Bible says you are an idolater. You're an idolater. You've made an idol that you've set up as being something that's the most important thing. And all of your thinking, all of your feeling, and all of your choosing are going to extend from that idol. That's the way the Bible pictures how you work. But of course, that's a study on anthropology, not on the Bible. So let's move to the second point. (laughs) The Bible, therefore, secondly, is all about the salvation that God is bringing through Christ. Anywhere you look in the Scriptures, you will find Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said He was going to be there. In Luke chapter 22, or is it 24, Jesus is on the way to, he has arisen from the dead, and he's walking along with two disciples who, for some reason, don't recognize him at that point. And they're talking about these events that had just happened. Like, there was a guy named Jesus. He was awesome for about three years. And then they killed him, and now some people are saying that he's risen from the dead. We're about to freak out. 
And um, Jesus is kind of like, man, y'all, are, y'all still don't get it, do you? And he leads, at that very moment, the greatest small group Bible study ever known in the history of man. And, what, and the only information we get about that small group Bible study is this. And Jesus sat and unfolded the scriptures and told about how it was all about him. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is in the law. He's the supreme lawgiver. Jesus is in the prophets. He was the one who was foretold in the prophetic message. Jesus is in the writings. He was the personification of wisdom. Jesus is in the New Testament. He's the promised Emmanuel that no one expected God to actually show up in human form. When you read the Bible, you are looking to see where Jesus is in that. Um, one of the, I think one of these things, you will find that we in RUF work very hard to encourage our campus ministers to keep this perspective. And some of you have gotten to where you're going, when Jason talks, it just feels a little bit different, and I can't really put my finger on why. That's the reason why. Because when Jason and the rest of the RUF staff sit down to open up the Bible, and I would say those who are really celebrating the Reformed tradition, when they open the Bible, they're looking to see that it's a book about Jesus. You want to mess up your reading of the Bible? Make it be primarily about you. The Bible is not about you first. (laughs) The Bible is about Jesus first, and then only incidentally about how you deal with him. If you read it that way, it completely transforms the way you're looking at it. Christ is the focus of the Bible. When we read it, we're looking for him. Why? Because we all have a fundamental need. And that fundamental need is to be in right relationship with God. That's what's assumed. The Bible addresses uh, the need that we have uh, to become what God has created us to be. Uh, I've argued with people that the Bible really answers two fundamental questions. Number one, for me as a human being, how can I be right with God? How can I know that I'm in good relationship with my Creator? And then secondly, how can I change? How can I become somebody that I'm not right now? How can I change the parts of myself that I don't like, that I don't appreciate? When we search the Bible for an answer to these questions, we see that the ultimate answer is always the same. It's in Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about His work in the Old Testament and the New Testament to provide for man's moral dilemma in that respect. Okay? So uh, the nature of the Bible, therefore, is laid out for us in that particular way. Um, what is, therefore, the setting of the Bible? Well, I hope this helps a little bit to throw out at least some maps. And again, some of you are going to be like, duh, don't do that, because I promise you, A, you know, uh, you don't know as much as you think you know about sort of these things, I promise. Um, secondly, d- don't ever talk that way in like small groups and Sunday school classes because there may be somebody that was kind of like, I may have missed that day in Sunday school and I don't know what we're talking about here. Um, but here's where we are. We are in what we know now as the Middle East, uh, the great sort of uh, eastern portion of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this over here is modern day uh, uh, Turkey. You've got the sort of northeastern tip of Africa in Egypt down here. And throughout the Arabian Desert, you have modern-day Israel, of course, concentrated in this particular area, uh, and modern-day Iran and Iraq as well. That is the land, as it were, of the primary action of the Bible. Of course, as you get into the New Testament, it will all begin to extend this way, but we'll get sort of further into that as we move on. So that places us kind of in the world in which we are. And we're going to show some maps throughout the rest of the morning uh, to show sort of where things tend uh, to happen as the setting uh, of, the, of the Bible. Okay? 
So let's dive into it, shall we? That's my introduction. That didn't take near as long as I thought it was going to, so I'm very happy about this. Uh, the last time I had to do this, I had to do this in two 45-minute sessions. Now I've got three 30-ish minute sessions, so um, working on rolling with this. Um, okay, so the story of the, of the Bible, uh, or the Old Testament. <clears throat> um, remember how I said that, Christi- that the Bible is not sort of a philosophy book, or a literary book, or a science book? Well, then what kind of book is it? Um, and I'm very helped by a little phrase that I got from one of my Old Testament professors by the name of Ralph uh, Davis, uh, who once said this, the Bible, and I love it because it was so short, is prophetic history. That's the phrase. The Bible is prophetic history. In other words, its primary action actually takes place in the course of real human events. Which to you, if you've grown up with the Bible as kind of your normal workaday stuff, might occur to you as like being, um, well, yeah, of course. But it's actually not a matter of course because the Bible is unique in all of the sort of religious books of the world um, uh, for being this. Because the Bible is telling a story about the redemption of mankind that was worked in through various events that God was ordaining and orchestrating to bring about that salvation. Now, I happen to be one of those weirdos who believes that God actually orchestrated every single event uh, in human history. Uh, That's a different topic for another time. Jason's going to explain all of the details of how predestination fits into our world. Um, But when we go oftentimes to the Bible, especially because it presents itself as and historical book, we kind of want it to read in the same way a history book reads. Um, I'm in the middle of doing, uh, uh, finishing up uh, a very long uh, history of the life of Richard Nixon, uh, one of our presidents from 1968 to 1974. Um, and it's amazing how uh, Stephen Ambrose works this, uh, this uh, uh, history because he's including everything that happened with the dude like and it's all chronological and then in april of 1972 he blah 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 and then in may of 1972 and there's a sense in which it kind of feels a little bit laborious but in the end you feel like you got a pretty good idea of what's going on that's what a historian does but when the writers of the bible sat down to sort of present history it wasn't exactly doing history in that way Like, let's just make sure that no matter what happens from here on out, everybody knows exactly what happened. No. These guys were not necessarily historians. You know what they were? They were preachers. Now, you can go ahead and roll your eyes at that. You're kind of like, oh, great. Um, (laughs) Another one. Um, But a preacher, though, doesn't necessarily see his task as, like, giving you all the details. It's not the same as a historian, is it? A preacher actually is going to go back through and say, look, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I see that God, as he reveals to me, there were certain events in this personal history that I'm writing down that actually reveal his nature in a very peculiar way. And so God began to say that I'm in charge of everything, but there's these certain events that happen through everything that goes on that I'm really showing what I'm about. And I want you people to write that down so it's preserved for all, all time and all generations. Does that make sense? That explains why when you sit down to read the Bible as a historian, oftentimes there are details that you would like to be there but are just not. You wish that you, God would have laid out for us exactly the manner in which 
humanity uh, was extended throughout what we would know as prehistoric time. You really wish the Bible would give that to us, you know? Tell us exactly how old the earth is, Bible. And I would make an argument that it doesn't necessarily intend to do that. When Moses is sitting down to write, as were, not a history per se, but a prophetic history to the children of Israel as he leads them up out of Egypt, and he begins with, in the beginning, he's not thinking to themselves, you know what, I really think they ought to know how the world was created exactly and how God specifically sort of ordained each event. He wasn't thinking that. But, of course, in our very modern scientific minds, we're kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. How did he do it? And you ready for this? Drum roll, please. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm agnostic when I get to those things. Why? And and here's the deal. I'm I'm actually comfortable in that unknowing. You want to know why? Because for some reason God said that I didn't need it. I didn't have to have that information. And if he is God, he knows what's most important for me. So there is a huge point uh, about, um, uh, to be made early on about what happened in creation. But did it answer all of my science professor's questions? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Now, you're, if, if, when we get to the question and answer, I want to have some time for Q&A as we kind of get in. You're going to ask me this question because you can't keep from ask, asking this question. Well, like, I don't know, what do you think? In, in my agnosticism about creation in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, I feel comfortable with two things. Number one, that God was in charge of it and that what happened was actual literal history. I do not take Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2 to be mythology in the sense that it was just <coughs> made-up characters. Okay, that's step number one. Step number two is, I think that scientists don't always pay attention to the fact that their own biases uh, uh, are entering into their knowledge base as much as it often is. Now, if you're a scientist, you're welcome to sort of gasp. Or, <laughs> there's an old movie that Mel Brooks used to, um, uh, that he would have everybody harumph. <gasps> harumph. Harumph. I didn't get a harumph out of you. Um, how dare you say that? A scientist is just as subject to human biases as he claims you are with your silly religious beliefs. Now again, that's a whole new, <laughs> that's a whole other topic that we're not going to get into. I'm simply saying that's where I rest between those two things. I don't think scientists know as much as they think they do, and I think honestly that, that all these are history. Where does that lead me? I have no earthly idea. That's as much as I'm willing to say. All right? Prophetic history. Um, the Bible, like our notation of time being divided by beginning, uh, B.C. or A.D., is divided by the coming of Christ. In other words, the book hinges on Christ. It contains 39 books in the Old Testament, uh, 27 in the New, leading to a total of 66 books. Um, the Old Testament contains, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, but notice something about how the Bible is arranged. I think this will help you as well. First of all, the Bible is actually not arranged chronolo- chronologically. You ever know this? This is a surprise to a lot of people because they're kind of like, wait a minute, there's a whole piece over here, I don't understand where that fits over that was not arranged by the order in which the events happened. Rather, it's arranged by literary genre. It's fun to say the word genre on a Saturday morning. Genre. Um, um, What does that mean? It means that it deals with the subject matter, the kind of books. So that what they have is, is you have, first of all, in the Old Testament, the books of history. Okay? That'll be Genesis all the way through to some of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It stops right there at Esther. 
for books of history. Secondly, you have the books of poetry. Let's sort of start in there with Job and move all the way through Song of Solomon uh, and some of those early, uh, prophetic, uh, those early poetry books there. And then finally, you have prophecy, the books of prophecy, which is everything after, I think, Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes, which is first. Song of Solomon Ecclesiastes. Good Bible teacher boy. Um, you should know which one comes first. After that, you start with the prophets. Yeah, somebody looked that up. Um, so, um, and by the way, the prophets are made up of five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Um, you know, major prophet doesn't mean like he's cooler than, you know, it's not like Isaiah was like better than Hosea. You know, Hosea, pff, who was that guy? Major and minor just mean bigger and larger. That's it. If you're a major prophet, it's a bigger book. If you're a minor prophet, it's a smaller book. But that means it's less important. Um, so w- for whatever that uh, helps you do. Song of Solomon. Job through Song of Solomon. I had it written down. Read your notes, Newsom. Um, so yeah, therefore, that's what we've got. First five books of the Bible will often be called the Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch is um, uh, the old sort of Hebrew name for penta, meaning five. First five uh, books of teaching that you'll hear people refer to it as well in the Old Testament. Okay? All right, so let's have a, a couple of minutes of question. I'm going to start with creation when we get back from our break. But any questions about what we talked about thus far, um, or just comments or clarifications? Can you explain the uh, oh, yeah. Mm. This is going to begin uh, with uh, Abraham. Uh, this is Abraham's journey to sort of make it into um, the, um, uh, uh, the, the promised land, into the area which most of the action after Abraham happens. This map basically picks up in Genesis chapter 12 or 15 um, is where this map is going to pick up. The prehistory we know would have been somewhere down here in the uh, uh, Tiger, Tigris and Euphrates River uh, around there in modern-day Iraq. So, any other thoughts? There's a little, um, I'll say one last quick thing about um, the, the, the kind of book that the Bible is. Um, a lot of times, I had somebody ask this years ago, and it's always been one of my favorite questions. They're like, you know, this all sounds very reasonable to me on a Saturday morning, you know, um, with you and all your maps, you know, <laughs> and your lasers. Um, but um, why is it, though, that I can't think my way into belief in the Bible? Think about that for a second. Why is it that this all looks so clear? Like, why do people still walk away from it if this is this clear? Now, you may, you may walk away being like, well, I'm not clear. That's fine. Um, you may walk away being like, man, why, why is everybody else so stupid? <laughs> um, there's a parable that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. It's a weird kind of thing. The rich man you know, feasts every day, and he's got this beggar at his gate named Lazarus who's just sitting around trying to eat crumbs that fall from the table. And, like, dogs are coming and licking on his sores, which is yucky in any generation. Um, and, well, the two of them die at the same time. The rich man goes to hell while uh, 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 Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Um, and so while they're there, they have this conversation. The rich man looks up and sees Lazarus, and he's like, oh, Father Abraham, going to do something about this? And Abraham's kind of like, no, I can't, because there's a chasm fixed here. You had your choices in life. You made them. Now here's where we are. Well, then all of a sudden he says something weird. He's like, well, okay, would you then send Lazarus to my five brothers? Because I don't want them to be a part of this. this is, I, I regret. He has regret. And he doesn't want his five brothers to come to hell, too. And Father Abraham says the weirdest thing to him. Do you remember what Father Abraham says? He says, well, don't worry about your five brothers. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
You ever read that? It's Luke 16. Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, which is really everything else, including the books of poetry. <laughs> so here's the suggestion. You know, don't worry about your five brothers who don't believe in Christianity because they have the Bible. Hmm. That, that doesn't feel very philosophically satisfying now, does it? Neither does it to the rich man because he's like... <clears throat> No, Father Abraham, which is never a good way to start a sentence with Father Abraham. No, Father Abraham. Um, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Now think about the rich man's thinking there. <laughs> um, if we could see something cool, like, I don't know, like a miracle. Um, have you ever driven around just being like, ah, God, I want to believe that you're there, but like, it's so hard. <laughs> Maybe I could see something. Like, uh, help me on this test. And then you get a good grade on the test, and then you never think about it again. <laughs> um, or, or maybe it's more personal than that, and I'm not making jokes about this. Or maybe it's, um, God, would you help my sick parent? My dad has cancer. Would you help him? And then you pray and pray and pray, and maybe he gets better, maybe he doesn't. But everybody walks around, it's like, y'all, it was a miracle. But then there's five other people going, I prayed and God didn't do it. Why don't I get to see the miracles? Isn't this how we think? Notice what's at the base of that. At the base of that is kind of like, God, you did not give us enough information. If you would just give us more information. Okay, so fast forward. Uh, actually, backtrack in time. Uh, I was sitting in a, in, a, in a Mexican restaurant in Memphis, my second year as a campus minister at the University of Memphis. And we were at the um, um, uh, Poplar Plaza behind the, the bookstore. No, the Mexican, what, what? No, 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 no. I thought it was El, Ch- El Charo or something like that. Maybe they changed the name of it. Anyway, <laughs> restaurant sitting there, and this guy, this guy is actually coming to RUF, has no interest in Christianity. It was so funny because he was like, oh, I'm a uh, so-and-so atheist, blah, blah, blah. It's a big, long name. I was like, cool. And I was like, why do you come to RUF? He's like, because there's pretty girls there. And I was like, got it. No problem. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm sitting there trying to figure out what this meeting is about. He's kind of throwing back margaritas the whole time. No, I was not drinking margaritas with him. We don't do that. Um, but he, um, at one point, you know, a little, little, a little loose-tongued, said this. He goes, this is my only question. Kind of slammed down his knife and fork. I want to know why God is hiding. Why is God hiding? And I was like, okay, Coop. His name is Cooper. We called him Coop. I was like, all right, Coop. I said, I, I give up. What do you mean? He said, well, if God wants people to believe in him so bad, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? You ever thought about that? Why all the invisibility, God? <laughs> Why not just show up? Let us see that you're there. Like, you know, um, give us some kind of proof. But what's the assumption that he's not given the proof? Well, look, when the rich man looks at Father Abraham and says, No, Father Abraham, if you had someone from the dead, the Father Abraham answers something very interesting. He goes, You know what? Actually, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to even pay attention if somebody rises from the dead. Now think about that story for a second. Who's telling that parable? Jesus. When I ask you that question, just say Jesus. It's almost always the answer. Jesus. Jesus is telling that story. Who is he talking about rising from the dead? Jesus. Thank you, Hugh. Hugh Hugh is following along with the lesson. Um, He's talking about himself. You see what he's saying? He's going, I'm going to rise from the dead. And guess what? It's still not going to be enough for people. Why? Why? 
Well, here we go with my little statement about the scientist that offended all the scientists in the room. Caitlin Ronning is over there just harumphing inside her own head because she's a neurophysiologist or something. Because um, here's the deal. The problem is not that we don't have enough information. The problem is we don't like the information that we have. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Nature shows forth his handiwork. Some of you are going to go out this afternoon and see his handiwork in the blue skies, in the beautiful day that we've got. And the Bible says that is pressing in and saying, God is there. Psalm 19 says, day after day it pours forth speech. Night after night it pours forth knowledge. There's no place on earth where the voice is not heard. (laughs) Everybody hears that God is there. But you're saying, you ain't been no miss, have you? Nobody hears that God's voice is there from what I'm looking at. You know why? Because human beings are born doing this. La, 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 la. It's not that I don't have enough information about him being there. It's that I know he's there. I just don't like it. And so in Romans chapter 1, we find out that what man is doing is, is he's holding it down. Romans 1, you know, that, 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 that uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and godliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. This is a weird description of your psychology. You need to be paying attention to this. Because <laughs> it means that in the midst of my doubt, it's not because I lack information, it's because I don't want to admit some things. And so when we get around and talk to each other and we consider the Bible, you know what it's doing? It, it starts opening junk up. You know, (laughs) Hebrews 4 says the Bible is like a two-edged sword. That's a violent description. Why would you say that? That's violent. What does it do? It divides even to the bone and marrow. (laughs) In other words, it gets inside. It cuts through the self-deception. Isn't that a weird statement? Self-deception? If someone was deceiving you, how do you break that? You know, let's say Rose is lying to me. She's lying to me. Liar. Now, the way to break that deception is for Rose simply to come and be like, I was lying, right? That's not true. But what happens when the deception comes from inside my own head? Um, I'm not going to go off on that too much. (laughs) 30 different ways I could go with that. But what happens when the problem is in me? That's what the Bible says that you're dealing with. And so what do you need? You need a word from the outside. Somebody's got to come in and break the deception. Ding, 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 ding. You know what that is? Moses and the prophets. The Bible. The Bible is that only thing that cracks through. If you're doubting and you've got friends who are doubting whether the Bible is true, let them read it. <laughs> Crazy thing is, that you don't have to believe the Bible is true in order to uh, be convinced that it becomes true. I love that. People are like, well, I won't read the Bible. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. That's a little bit, from a Christian's perspective, it's a little bit like this old illustration I used to tell. I actually heard Randy Pope use this illustration. Randy Pope. Let it like be on the record. I quoted a Randy Pope illustration. Um, he, pastor in Atlanta. Um, who said this one time. He was like, let's say that I've had enough of Jason Sterling. He's a bad campus minister. I've got to get rid of him, so I'm going to kill him. There's a lot of violent illustrations here on a Saturday morning. So I'm going to go at him with a, a dagger. I've got a dagger in my hand. And I walk up to him, and I was like, you know, you're done. And, and Jason stops me. He's like, what is that in your hand? I'm like, it's a dagger. And he's like, oh, whew, thank goodness. I don't believe in daggers. Now, how would you encourage me to respond to Jason with that? I would say, well, you know, Jason, the efficacy of the dagger is not really dependent upon whether or not you believe in the dagger. (laughs) The dagger does its work whether you believe in it or not, because it's kind of the nature of the dagger, right? Dagger. 
When someone looks and goes, I don't believe the Bible. The Bible's saying the, da- the Bible is like a two-edged sword. It's like a dagger. But its action in your life is not dependent on whether you believe in it or not. Struggling with whether the Bible is true? Go read it. Best possible position you can put yourself in to be convinced of it. That was a little side thing, and it's 10 o'clock, so let me take a break here. All right, let's take a break. 10 minutes? Let's do, let's do like a real 10-minute one. I'm going to start talking in exactly 10 minutes, so y'all get yourself a break and stretch. And Hugh's going to lead in some calisthenics. Good morning. You think I lied to you yesterday?